Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, my name is Miranda Lutz, and I'm a senior associate in Global Council's Washington, D.C. office. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Freddie Michelle, who is associate in GC's Russia, CE, and Eurasia practice. And today, we'll be discussing the implications of U.S.-Russia relations on the tech industry. And in particular, we'll take a look at what the U.S.-Russia controversies might mean for the tech industry. And this is certainly an interesting time to discuss these topics as we've had some big international meetings, thinking of the the G7, the EU-U.S. summit, and the, the NATO summit in particular. And I think that the tech industry, perhaps more so than other industries at the moment, are heavily exposed to fluctuations in geopolitical relations. If you think of um, social media platforms and content moderation, I think that those are a, a good example of where tensions at a very high level between Russia and the U.S. can trickle down and have a very real and practical implication for the business operations of tech firms. So let's dive right in. So the the tech industry in particular is heavily subject to vulnerabilities um, in Russia-U.S. relations, particularly because tech companies, more so than any other industry, can't control the organic growth. So if you think about a social media company, they may target certain markets, but their growth will potentially occur in areas where they didn't intend. And this means that they'll have to contend with the politics, geopolitics, restrictions, et cetera, that are in that particular jurisdiction. And so if you consider U.S. tech companies operating in Russia, this is particularly important because the, the fluctuations at a very high level between Russia and the U.S. can make it difficult or maybe challenging, let's say, to navigate the complexities in this relationship. So, Freddie, if we begin with a topic that applies to all tech firms, let's look at data localization. In the broader Europe, um, tech firms have watched as uh, country member states in, in the EU have increasingly favored data localization requirements. Could you maybe break down how this is looking and if there's a similar trend in Russia? So what I'd start with by saying is there are two factors here that come into play when, it, when we're talking about kind of Russia. So the data localization, which you just said, and also physical localization, that's uh, opening offices in Russia. And these aren't just things that play out in Russia, we see them globally, but there is a unique aspect to Russia, which I'll, I'll just sort of jump in and talk about. So on the data localization part, the actual issue about whether companies should localize or not has been stipulated by the Russian government as they should, but the actual localization part itself, moving the data or the servers that control the data into Russia, largely remains unresolved because the governments and the authorities just don't have enough leverage on US companies and all foreign companies to encourage them to actually localize data. So we we often see the companies that are dragging their feet on compliance. Um, they argue that they've complied to a certain extent, like creating plans, partnering with local firms. And they can because data is a very complicated issue. How do you define Russian user data as compared to the world's data? So um, they are saying that they are trying to comply or they have complied, but the government's still clear that uh, up until now, there's been very few actual examples of compliance up to the standard they expect. And just on 
physical location, the uh, issue of opening an actual office in Russia, the government's put a lot of faith into a new bill called the Grounding Bill, English translation of it, which is currently making its way through Parliament. And it's very likely it's going to actually pass the government or pass through Parliament. This grounding bill requires foreign tech firms that have some presence in Russia, and there's various ways of defining that, but they're quite broad on, on how you define a foreign tech company's investment in Russia, to um, open a physical office in Russia by January 1st, 2022. So that's the deadline that the bill puts out, saying that companies like Facebook, Amazon, TikTok, Google, and then there are many others have to open a physical office in. And there are several penalties for non-compliance with this. So advertising bans, we've seen sort of mentions of slowdown of internet speeds, which we have seen with Twitter. So they have had their internet speeds slowed down recently for a different reason, but it was a technical uh, aspect that the regulator was able to do. But we haven't seen whether this bill will actually pass. As I said, it probably will. But when it does, we'll have a, a bit of intense moment for the next few months to see um, whether tech companies do localize to the standard that the government expects. So it's a it's a watch this space kind of question, I would say. Thanks. And do you know what's, I think the physical localization is really interesting because that's something that maybe we're not seeing in the broader Europe. And so what's driving the desire for physical localization? Is it to bring the argument back to data localization or is it trying to incentivize economic development locally, you know, the hiring of local Russians, et cetera? Is there a broader upper reason for this? Yeah, so it's a lot of what you've just said, actually. So there is a, a certain economic element. If you have a company like Google who open an office, which they do have some presence, by the way, in Moscow, that does drive a lot of development. They obviously invest and, and so on and so forth. But really the main reason, and, and the authorities in Russia have been really clear about this, is to get more compliance with these companies. They think that, and, and Putin has spoken about this back earlier this year, that if companies have an office in Russia, they are more likely to comply with the local laws which is a big central argument of the Russian government, which essentially they've created these laws. It is not up to companies who make money in Russia to determine which laws they do comply with and which laws they don't comply with. So um, the idea is if you open a local office, you are more likely to have some sort of compliance with the local laws and more incentive to comply. And um, this bill actually sets out quite clearly that it can't just be some person in a small office that has no control. The actual office has to be physically able to control content, remove content on request of government. So um, they've been quite clear about this from the start. You alluded to this, but I think it's important to maybe drill down into this, the content issue. We've seen recently that there's been a fairly robust clampdown on anti-government content within Russia, following on that new legal framework that will expand the government's control over the content shared on social media platforms. And truly what's amazing to me is that Western companies like YouTube and Twitter are actually complying with these requests to take down content that is deemed illegal. Now, often these companies, say they say that they comply with the requisite laws in the countries that they operate in, but this is maybe a different scenario since what's being deemed, you know, quote unquote, illegal is maybe a little bit controversial since it's largely anti-government or anti-Putin sentiment, you know, anything that paints those in a, in a negative light. So maybe can you walk us through what these new powers the government will have will look like in this space and, and what that means for tech companies? Yeah, so like with the question just asked, there is a certain amount of nuance we need to bring into this one regulator and the Russian authorities do share quite a lot of compatibility with foreign platforms in, in what they perceive as 
legal content or content that should be removed. So like we see in the West, certain content that encourages violence or extremism, any content that encourages sort of drug use is generally aligned with. So it's not that every piece of content is seen as controversial. We've seen quite a lot of platforms complying with those parts. But your question really relates to that key part, the sort of minority issue, which is the content that Russian government perceives as illegal, but doesn't align with a lot of the policies of these platforms like Facebook and, and Twitter. So the ones you were talking about then, the most controversial one is probably the incitement of minors to commit illegal acts, which is a law, or it's a piece of a law that essentially says that content that incites minors to commit, quote, unquote, illegal acts should be taken down. And, and as you can see, it's quite an ambiguous sort of phrase. And we're seeing that that's being used a lot to suppress content that supports Navalny, supports the opposition, supports opposition protests, because those protests are, according to the government, illegal, um, or they often define as riots. So that's the sort of view they have that essentially the content should be removed because it is encouraging minors to do those things. But we also see other uh, quite ambiguous legal texts kind of offending human dignity and public morality, which again can be used by the regulators to essentially put it onto certain platforms and say, we think this particular piece of content is breaking this rule and you need to remove it. And it's up to interpretation. And this makes it very difficult for foreign platforms to actually get to grips with the policy, because if you've got a regulator that sort of defines content on a case by case basis as, as either legal or legal, it makes it really hard to come up with a long term strategy. There are ways um, we've been working with some of our, our clients on this, but it is difficult to kind of navigate that path clearly. On your actual question on the powers the government has, so the most recent and famous case we've had is Twitter, where they were slowed down. They are still slowed down, though there was a compromise recently. This basically was over content. The regulator said there's certain content needs to be removed from the platform, and they weren't removing it, so they slowed it down. Well, they were relatively successful. The slowdown happened, people noticed it, and they said, you know, it's effective. Both sides, both Twitter and the regulator, have said they've come up with some reasonable arguments on that, but we'll see how far it goes. But generally, we'd say that that up till now, there's been a, a difficulty for the regulator and the Russian authorities to actually get foreign companies to actually remove content that they, they believe is difficult. And this is a very live issue right now. And we'll see there are talks about advertising bans, about stopping user data from going abroad, on monetization, stopping uh, Russians from giving money to companies, even stopping uh, search results. So if you wanted to search for a company like um, Facebook, you could say something like Facebook's results won't appear on on, on a search engine if, if we think it shouldn't, which again is a very controversial issue, um, still theoretical, but these are uh, penalties that are coming up with as we speak. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's still theoretical in Russia, but it's kind of the reality on the ground and in other places. If you look like China, there's very much this wall of what is allowed and what's accessible and what's not. But I think that this is a really important point, particularly for maybe smaller um, or fast growing companies, because I think that for U.S. tech companies, the overarching model for how they operate and run business has been the um, you know, infamous move fast and break things. So then it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast is sometimes these tech companies end up growing in markets where that they didn't intend. Um, and then they have to contend with these local laws that are, you know, very controversial. And so they're playing a little bit of a catch up in that sense. And so I think that's, you know, particularly important for maybe smaller companies that are um, looking to break into the 
the Russian market or are, have already broken into the Russian market and are trying to figure out where do they go from here? What are their risks? What are their opportunities? So I think that's a really interesting point. And then I don't know if you've seen any differences in how the Russian government has treated maybe, you know, the large tech platforms. Obviously, Twitter and Facebook are kind of always first in the firing line for stuff like this. But if you've seen that these content rules has maybe made it more difficult for smaller or middle-sized tech companies to operate in the in the market. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll bring back to something you just said earlier a second ago, which was on the on the China policies. On, on China, they have a very specific um, rule on, on tech. They People sort of know where they stand on this. With Russia, it's a bit more ambiguous. So we, we certainly get governments, officials who say they don't want to be like China. They're essentially being like the West. They're being like European Union and US. They're just sort of adapting it to Russia. But essentially, they're saying that content is allowed on the Internet, but that certain content should be removed. And you can see how that gets really ambiguous for companies. A lot of gray area on that one. Which and even really... in the US, I mean, I would say we're not um, immune to these types of controversies. <laughs> I think that if anything, this past year has has shown that whether or not it's the anti-government content that um, Russia is trying to crack down on, which is obviously a little bit different. But you know, in the US, we have issues over fact-checking and truths about political statements and, and the like. So it's certainly a, an expansive debate topic. Oh, totally. It's around the world. And that's what's going to be quite exciting to watch in the next few months and years. On your particular question about smaller companies, I'll just briefly touch on that one. So they, they do get affected. We've recently seen something along the lines of, of video games being impacted because uh, the Russian government thinks that the chat forums that come with games um, are open to abuse. So maybe basically free communication on, on certain topics um, that isn't monitored or regulated. So they, they've, they've been talking and discussing new rules and regulations on that topic, which we hadn't seen before. So essentially, wherever there's a, a debate about online communication and where certain people kind of talk, there will be a debate about regulating it. But I think Let's sort of talk a bit more. We've discussed sort of US companies in Russia. Let's sort of flip the question around a bit for a second and talk about if I can ask you, if I was a, a Russian tech company and, and I was sort of you know, concerned about, about investing in the US, as you just said, I mean, what sort of things do you think I should be thinking about on, on that policy? Sure. So I think on the surface level, um, the fact that the U.S. doesn't have a comprehensive data privacy law can be a little bit complicated for companies coming from countries where those there are maybe perhaps more robust regimes and there's more certainty for, for businesses. But I think that probably the biggest open question for companies um, in Russia looking to operate in the U.S. or even in the U.S. looking to operate in Russia is the, the U.S. sanctions regime around uh, Russia. And that's where things can certainly get a little bit sticky. Um, you know, the U.S has a very robust and comprehensive sanctions regime for um, Russia's actions in Ukraine, cyber attack, various influence operations, human rights abuses, weapons proliferation, trade with North Korea, support of Syrian and Venezuelan governments, the list goes on. So basically what that means is that there's a very complicated web of sanctions that companies will have to navigate around. And I think that maybe something you could potentially shed a little bit of light on is that one of the problems that companies have when they come to the US is that the governance and power structures in Russia are a little opaque. So it's a bit hard sometimes for US regulators or US government to understand if whether or not these um, Russian companies have any connections to potentially sanctioned entities. And so that's one challenge. You know, the other is if you look at the TikTok example, 
I think that the U.S. is increasingly wary of Americans' data being held or potentially being accessed by foreign governments. So even though President Trump wasn't entirely successful in his attempts to ban TikTok, I think it highlights a really important trend that frankly has not gone away under President Biden, where even though the actions um, are maybe limited that the government can take, there's going to be increasing pressure on companies to ensure or to demonstrate that they are not sharing any sort of relation or any sort of information or data with the that government. And so I think you could potentially see similar risks playing out in Russia. And that's where it kind of goes back to that opaqueness issue is if the U.S. doesn't fully understand if they're connected to uh, a tech company is connected to a Russian oligarch, that could potentially be a little bit sticky and create some, some friction there. Yeah, so that's a, an interesting point you raised and something I think we should probably talk about in the future is, is how how you get kind of Russian companies um, who operate perfectly legitimately in their country, if they do successfully, they have to operate within Russia's regime and, and the, the, the kind of power that structures that exist there, which means that they have to have relations and not illegal or illegitimate relations, just sort of simply having connections with with certain people, as you see in the US as well. And these can often be quite difficult to sort of regulate or, or monitor. And they can, as I said, be completely legitimate. But if you have a, a State Department official in the US who perceives you, the tech company, as having an unfavorable relationship with a certain oligarch or a certain person, even if you don't, then that could mean that you are sanctioned or, or you have a, a sanction connected to you, which is really difficult for a lot of companies. We've seen a few things, a few examples of this previously, but it's something that a lot of companies sort of need to be aware of. And, and again, you, you get back to this issue that you were talking about just now, that if you have sanctions, they have a huge remit. They can affect all aspects. So even if they're not actually targeted specifically at you, they often can have sort of other unintended effects. So if you use certain companies or have certain relations with certain entities or certain entities that are owned by people, you can often be impacted. And we've seen this both ways, both Russian companies in the US and US companies in Russia, where they often have the situation where they, they are acting legitimately, but through some inadvertency, they find themselves in the firing line of sanctions, but they didn't even know they were because the sanctions are so broad. And it's just something that needs to be aware of that sort to, to flag. Yeah. And the risks are really twofold. You know, one is the maybe more tangible, explainable risk of secondary sanctions, which is those that you just described, where an entity, a primary sanctioned entity is going to be the focus of, let's say, the uh, U.S. government restrictions. But if another person or company is believed to be facilitating transactions on behalf of that primary sanctioned entity or be involved with that primarily sanctioned entity or person, then they could be subject to, to secondary sanctions. And that's particularly relevant probably for fintech firms, where if you're looking at financial transactions and you know your uh, AML and um, compliance regimes maybe not, are not up to snuff, then that could potentially be a risk. But then the secondary risk is maybe more of a, a reputational risk um, because, you know, in the U.S. there is maybe an unfair tendency to paint certain Russian actors with a, a broad brush as, um, you know, being a, a risk. And like you said, sometimes these companies need to operate within the environment and that sometimes requires, you know, connections, meetings, et cetera, with people that may fall on the, you know, quote unquote, U.S. suspect list through no fault of, and, you know, be totally legitimate actions and, and reasons, but that could potentially create some reputational risks for them, at least in, in the U.S. And that's something to be wary of. But again, I think it's certainly a risk that is 
is um, can be mitigated, as you've said, with some global council clients that are are navigating the, that right now. So I'm sure they're they're lucky to have you. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that a U.S. company that's operating in Russia um, needs to be aware of? I think we've covered all of the bases that are uh, you know maybe immediately relevant: physical localization, data localization, content monitoring. But if there is anything else, I think I'd be certainly interested to hear. I mean, we we've only scratched the surface of of the topics and then given a really high level review of them. And and I think the most important thing to remember is that each company will have a, some factor of risks that they need to just be adapted to. You, there is no one size that fits all for Russian companies in the US or US companies in Russia. They have to come up with a, a way, and this is what we, as I said, we've been doing, is come up with flexible ways to actually fit the company. And it's a you know brave new world. You have to think about how, how things will work in the future. And, and there isn't the sort of idea that you can follow the previous examples and, and hope that that will lead you to the right direction. Yeah, I'd say I'd say watch this space on on things, you know, if you if you want to talk to us about what we do, then of course, we'd be happy to and then we've got the uh, webinar coming up with Fiona Hill, which I'm sure you're going to give us a little bit more information. Yes, we're very excited to welcome uh, Fiona Hill for an event on July 12th, so next month. And Fiona is a well-renowned U.S. Um, Russia expert, and so we're very much looking forward to that. And in general, if uh, you and your businesses are uh, interested in participating or joining that event, you can um, register in the link in this podcast notes. And then thank you, Freddie. I want to thank you for your insights. That's been, it's been a very interesting conversation today. Um, for our listeners, if uh, any of these topics resonate with you or your business are facing similar challenges, we'd love to get in touch with you. You can find our contact details for myself and for Freddie. Um, as well as our sectoral teams. Um, as Freddie mentioned, we have just scratched the surface and we do have a very robust TMT practice that covers this more from the, a technical angle as well. And you can find all of that information on the GC website at www.global-council.com. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.